I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to get to the truth of God. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey. And today we are going to change things up just a little bit. So far up to this point, we have been dealing with each of the speeches individually. We've been going through Eliphaz and then through Job's response and then through Bildad and Bildad's response and so forth. Well, starting this week, we're going to start dealing with the friend's speech and Job's response in one go. So this week, rather than just dealing with a single chapter of Eliphaz, we're going to deal with Eliphaz and then Job's two-chapter response. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because there's a whole lot more of just the same stuff that's contained in these. We've covered so much of this already. Mm -hmm. and it, it seems like there's just not enough content if we only do each one individually. Right. And it kind of brings up that point that I brought up last week, that when you come to the scroll of Job and you look at how long it is and you consider just how expensive it was to write a book, just how many words are used in this book to repeat the same ideas over and over. It's frankly astounding. It's not like we would want to do it in the modern world. Yeah, it's definitely more a art piece. It is an art piece, but I think it kind of reflects what it takes to get people to change their mind on something. Yeah. And I and it also does reflect the fact that people do go through the same things over and over and right. play it again in their heads over and over and over again. It's kind of why I said an art piece, because it makes you almost experience it. Right. And, and it is an art piece because it is written in poetry. Um, but yeah, it, it also, as you're saying, it reflects the cycles that humans go through. Uh, most people, they don't want to confront uh, areas of bad theology or areas where they might be wrong. They'd rather just be right, especially when they have some sort of evidence staring them right in the face that they can point to and say, but see, this confirms my previously held belief. And so my previously held belief must be true. Yeah. And they also typically want to just throw out soundbite theology right? and say, see, there's, there's the answer. And then wash their hands of the whole thing. Right. And it takes multiple encounters with the same challenging material over and over and over again before change can actually sink in. 
Yeah, before progress is made. Right. And and that's just the, the nature of humanity. It's the nature of people, uh, both as individuals and as large groups. Um, it, we just, we don't learn that well. We're, we're extremely confident in our own ability to know truth or to see the right of things. I can't tell you how many people I've met who get to a point in their lives where they recognize that there's just something missing from mainstream Christianity. And mm-hmm. they they search and they search and they come to this understanding that maybe we should be keeping the entire Bible, that all of it applies. And they will camp on that as absolute truth. And, and they'll add a whole lot of stuff to it. A lot of different teachers, a lot of different misunderstandings, the idea that Christmas is pagan mm, or the idea yeah. that uh, well, um, and that comes from the God's fact. name is only pronounced this way or you have to say God's name in this way in order to be saved. Or- and, and those things come from from the the I've been lied to mentality. Right. I was I was deceived, so I refuse to be deceived again. And right. And and it. But the what I'm trying to explain is that it does come from that mentality, but too often people won't learn the humility from the lesson of being previously deceived. Right. To check to see whether the new information they're taking in is also a deception in some way. Yes. I know I was guilty of it when we first came to understanding of Torah observance. Uh, we were not very kind to those around us. Uh, we were very adamant. This is the truth. This is the truth. I was deceived before, but now, now I have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And it took us several years and some friends who walked with us patiently through our own mess before we started to recognize that, hey, maybe some of these new things that we've learned that were, that had the label of truth attached to them aren't necessarily all that true either. Right. And... It, with that comes a helping of humility. And that's what Job's friends need in this situation is they need a bit of humility. And that's what they're going to get before the end when God comes and speaks to Job. Uh, we get this idea that God is is speaking to the friends as well. Mm-hmm. That he's audibly there in the presence of all the friends correcting them. And so because they all bring sacrifices at the end in order to seek forgiveness. Uh, they all recognize, oh, we were wrong at the end. Uh, and so they do learn the lesson, but it takes re-encountering it over and over and over again to learn that lesson. And that's what we see through the book of Job, is this idea of re-encountering the same stuff. But because we are re-encountering the same stuff, it gets a bit repetitive. Mm-hmm. And our modern minds rebel at the idea of repetition, unless it's something like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> and our modern minds rebel at the, the idea, idea of repetition. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we're going to cover three chapters again this week. And for the coming weeks, it's going to be multiple chapters as we deal with the friend and Job's response all at once. And then uh, a little bit later, we're actually going to change this format yet again when the book of Job changes yet again. So without further ado, let's go ahead and open to the book of Job and let's read. Job chapters 15 to 17. Then Eliphaz the Temnite responded and said, Does a wise man answer with empty knowledge or fill his belly with the east wind? Does he argue with useless talk and words that have no value in them? 
You even do away with reverence and hinder devotion before God. For your iniquity prompts your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not understand? Both gray-haired and aged are with us, men even older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or a gentle word toward you? Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash, so that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he could be pure, or one born of woman that he could be righteous? If he puts no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man, who is vile and corrupt, who drinks evil like water? I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have declared and did not hide from their ancestors, to whom alone the land was given, when no foreigner passed among them. All his days the wicked suffers torment, and numbered are the years stored up for the tyrant. Terrifying sounds are in his ears in a time of peace. Marauders attack him. He does not expect to escape from darkness. He is destined for the sword. He wanders about for bread. Where is it? He knows that the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king poised to attack. For he raises his hand against God and flaunts himself against Shaddai, defiantly rushing at him with a thick, strong shield, because he covered his face with his fat and made his lips bulge with blubber. He lived in ruined cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are ready to crumble into heaps. He will not become rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the land. He will not escape from the darkness. A flame will wither his shoots, and he will depart by the breath of his mouth. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. Before his day it will be paid in full, and his branch will not be green." He will shake off his unripe grapes like a vine, and cast off his blossoms like an olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive mischief and bring forth evil, and their belly prepares deception. Job answered, saying, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. There is no end to your futile words. What compels you to answer? I too could speak like you, if I were in my place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth, and comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, does it not go away from me? Surely now he has exhausted me, you have devastated my entire household. You have seized me. It has become a witness. My leanness rises against me and testifies to my face. His anger has torn and tormented me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My enemy looks at me with daggers in his eyes. 
People open their mouths against me. They strike my cheek in contempt. They unite together against me. God has handed me over to the ungodly and tossed me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He grabbed me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without mercy, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. He breaks through against me, breach after breach. He runs after me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and sunk my horn in the dust. My face is red from weeping, and on my eyelids are deep darkness, yet no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Earth, do not cover my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, he contends with God on behalf of man, as one pleads for a friend. For the number of years will come to pass, and then I will go the way of no return. My spirit is broken. My days have cut short. The graveyard awaits me. Surely mockers are with me. My eyes must gaze on their hostility. Make then a pledge for me with you. Who else would strike hands with me? Because you have closed their heart to understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. If anyone denounces his friends for profit, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword to people. I am the one in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief, and all my limbs are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this. The innocent are stirred up against the ungodly. But the righteous one holds to his way, and the one with clean hands grows stronger. But turn, all of you, come now. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed. My plans are torn apart. Yet the desires of my heart turn night into day. In the face of darkness, light is near. If I hope for Sheol as my home, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, You are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? And my hope, who sees it? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol? Will we descend together into the dust? Eliphaz the Temnite. We encountered him before. He was Job's first friend who spoke to Job. And the first time that he speaks to Job, He's pretty gentle he in is his gentle. approach. He's he's not the he, he's the gentlest of all of them in the beginning. But here Well, and and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that all that Job has said up to that point is I just wish I were dead. When when yeah. Eliphaz first speaks, they've sat for 7 days and then Job gives his lament. And then Eliphaz speaks, and his first words are meant to comfort. But if we'll remember back to Eliphaz, his whole worldview was based on correct sound doctrine. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, well, you just need to repent. Right. Clearly, you're in the wrong. Let's let's work through this. You know, but he was not. He was still operating from a skewed perspective. Right. And now after Job has been confronted by two other friends and Job has responded repeatedly with, I am not guilty of any sin. This is not 
my fault that this stuff happened to me. Now suddenly Eliphaz, defending his doctrine that he has held so for so long that has been handed down by his his forefathers, now turns on Job. He gets angry. He's he's angry. He's he's mean. He does get mean, yes. Especially there at the very beginning. Would a wise man answer with vain knowledge? In other words, you're not a wise man, Job. Your knowledge is vain. Or is he going to feel his belly with the east wind? Your words are like are like wind. Would he reason with useless talk? Your reasoning is off. Um, or would he give speeches which don't profit? Your speeches are, are worthless. And, and he goes on. Would you do away with reverence and withhold your prayer before God? You're, you're turning away from proper reverence to God's name by, by saying that he is the one that's, that's doing this to you. Don't you know? Don't you know you deserve this, Job? You are not righteous. You are not pure. You are not a good man. Nobody is good in God's eyes. And yeah, that's where he goes with it in, in the next section is that man can't be good. Right. But before he gets to that section in verses 7 through 13, he, well, specifically 7 and 8, maybe. Um, but he says... Are you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel or limit wisdom to yourself? That these words, we're going to hear an echo of this in God's speech to Job. Right. We're actually going to see a whole lot of this style of argument in the upcoming chapters. Uh, what I call an appeal to ignorance. You can't answer these questions. You're ignorant of the answer to these. So obviously you're wrong. Because you don't, you can't answer yes to these questions I'm telling you. And he's going to use this tactic. Elihu later is going to use this tactic. Uh, God himself is going to use this tactic. Multiple friends, and even Job himself, is going to use these tactics of, do you know? Dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Were you there? Dot, dot, dot. Are you right. able to? Dot, dot, dot. Uh, these appeals to your ignorance, Job. You don't know enough. And because you don't know enough, you're obviously misreading this entire situation. And so you're in the wrong. And the truth is that none of them know enough. And all right. of them are, in fact, in the wrong. In the wrong. Actually, no, Job is in the right. God calls it out later, even as he's dressing Job down for, you don't know my plans and you don't know my purposes and you don't know why I did this. You can't second guess me. But he also says, Job, you answered you correctly. Were, you were innocent. Yeah, yeah, you were innocent. I This was something that you did not deserve because of sin or because of something you did. This is something that happened for another reason that you're just not going to know. Mm -hmm. And Job gets his... uh Vindication. Vindica yeah, he yeah. gets his vindication from God. Yeah. Uh, even as he's getting somewhat of a dressing down from God. Because he wants he wants to know, what have I done wrong? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me? And God says, you never know the why. But mm -hmm. you're right in that it was, in essence, at my hand that this happened. Mm -hmm. And it didn't happen for anything that you did. This isn't punishment. But Elihu, he can't see that. None of his friends can conceptualize that this sort of evil this sort of 
terrible circumstances could befall a righteous person. Right. So later on in the in chapter 15, starting verse 17 or so, he basically comes right out and says, you are wrong, Job. You are wicked. Because we know that this is what has been handed down to us from before. This is the height of wisdom of our day and age. We know for a fact that no one is punished like you are unless they're wicked. Mm-hmm. We have hundreds of Proverbs that I'm going to repeat back to you that prove that, that you don't, you're wicked. Yeah, that you don't stand a chance. And that's something that we're going to encounter when we get to the book of Proverbs, is they're not equations. They're not They're not um, if-then truth statements. They're Fair generalizations. Much. Yeah, they're, and it's not a prescription, right. do this, don't do this. It's a, this is the way to wisdom. This is the way to knowledge. This is the way to understanding. Right, but there are some things that are said in Proverbs that seem to be straight-up declarations. Bring up a child on the way that he shall go, and he shall not depart from it. Right. Uh, there have been plenty of people who have raised up their children in the, in the ways way of Christianity, in the ways of believing in God, and the ways that they should go, and how to be a right person, and how to live righteously and justly. And the children do not remain in it. Right. And so from our standpoint of, well, our proverb says this, so therefore, if it doesn't happen, then you're in the wrong. We need to understand that the proverbs are general statements. In general, if you raise up a child on the way that they go, they won't depart from it. In the majority of cases, that doesn't mean you're not going to have bad apples. Right. And even the Torah kind of recognizes there are going to be those bad apples when it gives the prescription for uh, dealing with dealing them. with yeah. the... A child that won't be... Oh, right. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to it, I'd recommend you go back. But the prescription for what's commonly called stoning children, it's not a young child of 8 or 10 that's being stoned. It's a young man, probably just about marrying age, who has proven that he is not going to be fit as a man, a husband, a provider, someone who's going to fit into the community, someone who is going to drain resources he's someone who's going to hurt those around him be a drunk and a and a glutton, glutton. and and serve only his own needs and not think narcissist. of anyone around yeah he's going to be a narcissist or psychotic and so it's a it's a way of dealing with a child who has grown up over many years and has demonstrated through actions that they are not fit for a community Mm-hmm. And it is a harsh way to deal with people who are like that. But it is a protective measure that God has given. Uh, regardless, getting back on the topic. So these proverbs that are being thrown out against Job as accusations by Eliphaz. Eliphaz believes that they're absolute truth. Yeah, he absolutely does. He's he's convinced that Job is in the wrong and there's no two ways about it. Yeah, and he is not doing so in a any kind of um helpful, kind, gentle uh, helpful, kind, gentle way or, or even subtle way. Yeah. He is being very much in your face at this point. And the whole point of this exchange, especially with Eliphaz, is to cause us to take our 
firmly held beliefs that we call doctrine and maybe hold them a little looser than we normally would. Yeah, I think that that is something that we all could genuinely take a page out of because one of the things that we've learned throughout this process is that hold to Yeshua and him crucified, that's your foundation. Right. That's it. Right. It is God Almighty, Yeshua, him crucified, and everything else relatively is is i'm not i'm not again i'm not making a blanket absolute statement here but but everything else else needs to be willing to be wrong be held loosely so when you approach things in science so many times in science there's no certainty no absolute certainty in an outcome especially in the modern sciences and the deep hard sciences There's no certainty in what the outcome of something is going to be. There's only a probability of outcome. And so scientists will assign a probability to their conclusions. And I think we need to kind of hold our doctrines with that same sort of looseness. I am this much percent certain I have this right. But I do have some questions and there is that little bit of, of doubt that's been yeah. seeded, whether through experience, whether through some sort of good argument, whether through some potential contradiction in what I've read in scripture, uh, that is, has seeded well, just, just a tiny the bit door of doubt. Open. Right. Leave, yeah, especially leaving the door open for God to speak into the situation. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that that would be a much wiser way for so many of us to be able to to approach our views of God and our beliefs. Yes, Yeshua, the Son of God, came to earth, was crucified, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is sitting at the right hand of God as the king of the earth. And I will declare allegiance to him. Hard stop. Mm-hmm. After that, there's uncertainty that we need to allow into what that looks like, how that operates. Because the truth of it is, we don't have any of it figured out 100%. No one does. Right. And that's something that we see in nature. Um, and I may have used this analogy before, but if I did, it was a very long time ago. When we, when we look into nature and we look at a circle, mm-hmm. how do you discover the circumference of a circle? Pi R squared. You apply the symbol of pi. Well, what is pi? That's a great question. You could never, ever know pi, but you can still know pi. Mm-hmm. When spiral formations are encountered in nature, whether that's the water going down a drain or the spiral of a hurricane or a tornado, those are described using another symbol that's known as phi or the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. Again, an irrational number. You can never know phi. You can know it's 1.618 repeating numbers that don't ever actually repeat. A series of unending infinite numbers that never repeat. Or even the calendar in that 
we have to add in leap years and leap days and leap months, depending on what and calendar leap, you're using. And even leap seconds into the modern calendar. Because we don't have it figured out. It, it we is, don't know it to the fullest extent that it can be known. Right. It is humanly impossible. Right. So we can know the length of a day and that we've experienced it. And we can even conceptualize the length of a day. But we can never truly know the length of a day because it's a irrational number. Mm-hmm. The the circuit that the moon makes around the earth, it's an irrational number. The number of days it takes to circle the sun, it's an irrational number. All of these things, they're based on irrational numbers, but they're the foundations of our very existence. And we need to look at God the same way. Well, and and we see it in medical science, mm-hmm. too. There was a guy who recently woke up from a coma. He'd been in a coma for a couple of months because he'd had a brain tumor. Woke up from the coma, and now he's an amazing artist. Yeah. And he can draw things that he's only seen once, and he can draw it in great detail. He never, ever, ever had any art skills before this. Now he's an amazing artist. Like, doctors are going, we literally have no idea. We don't know every aspect of the human brain. We've studied for generations, but we do not know how the human brain works. Right. And uh, I think that's a lesson that Eliphaz could learn, is this bit of uncertainty in holding his doctrines. Because he is willing to call his friend who is suffering and has lost everything wicked because his friend has lost everything and is suffering and won't repent for what he's done wrong. And on top of that is accusing God of being the one that's harming him. Right. When God, in fact, When God is, in fact, the one who... Maybe not directly harming him, but as allowing the harm to occur. And that's really the the main highlight, I think, that we can get from Eliphaz. I don't even know if we... I know we... It fits our paradigm that God didn't do these things himself. Right. But God says that he brings calamity. Not that he... Send somebody else to bring calamity. He says he brings calamity. Right. And that and that stems from the idea of God's ultimate sovereignty. Is that even Satan is subject to his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Satan doesn't do anything without God's say so. He's he's incapable. And where Satan is capable of acting and moving and doing doing evil and wicked in the world, it's only because God has given him dominion over those areas because God has allowed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we could say the same thing for our own governments. God gives governments dominion. And so when they act in terrible, evil, and wicked ways and God doesn't do anything about it, well, it's because God has given them dominion to do what they will. He's given them purpose. He's given them guidelines and then said, go do. And if they don't go do... Well, he will bring them to judgment one day. So then chapter 16 then begins Job's response. And 
Job is fed up too. And we just, we saw that last week when Job responded. He's getting fed up with his friends. And last week was where we really started to see Job begin to shift his, his anger from God to them to his friends and he and now he's, lets him have he's it this doubling week. down you guys are worthless comforters all of you you know if i was in this situation if i were you and you were me i would probably be saying the same things you are but then again i might open my mouth and i might comfort you and i might strengthen you and i might build you up but regardless what you're doing it's you're not helping it's not helping in any way you're you think you're defending God, but you're not. And you think you're correcting me, but you're not. Because I know what I know, and I know that I didn't do anything wrong. I know that I'm guiltless. And so this can't be some sort of punishment from God. It's got to be something else. And this can't just be happenstance. It has to be from God. Right. And if it's not it's, punishment... It's then what is then it? Then what is it? Right. And he says, he doubles down on, but God is doing this to me. It is God. Yeah. He's the one that's crushed me. He's the one that has made me a target. You know? And what's so fascinating is even though Job recognizes God is the one doing this to me, he's the one crushing me, he has made me the target, and he's raised up a witness against me and brought me to shame and all these things, he still says, and yet, I find my hope in God. Right. My my intercessor, my advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. Right. And again, that, that use of the intercessory language, he's not talking about God in that. He's talking about someone else, some intermediary that is the intercessor. Mm -hmm. Again, it's this messianic hope of an intercessor that will stand between God and man. And will plead the case before God, plead man's case before God. And in a way, he's he's catching sight of Yeshua and the he need for Yeshua and the the truth that mankind needs an intercessor. Our own works won't save us. Our own works cannot save us. Job right. was righteous and his works are not saving him. They didn't save his children. They're not saving anything. They didn't save his property. He is at the bottom of the bottom, even though he had all the good works. Right. And the only thing that'll help is the intercessor. And he's using this friend language, which again, that is right. That's that the patron-client patron-client relationship that we've talked about a lot. Yeah, uh, but again, he he still maintains his own innocence. Verse sixteen to seventeen. Though my face was reddened from weeping and my eyelids is the shadow of death, though no violence was on my hand and my prayers were sincere, I'm full of this this sorrow and this weeping, even though I'm innocent, even though I'm sincere before God. I am suffering this unjustly. And it seems as though he feels as though he is at the end of his life. He does. He talks about it later. Chapter 17 kind of opens with that, yeah. Yeah. And he, he finds his hope in the grave at this point. He He's hoping in God, but he's also hoping in the grave. And I think one of his great regrets at this point is that he's been left alive long enough to see everything turn against him. Yeah, to see all of his friends and all of all of those who did care for him 
now mocking him and and ridiculing him and right condemning him right now it's not just the loss of the family the loss of the property and wealth the loss of the support status. of his wife the loss of status and now even those closest friends have all turned against him mm-hmm. and he is truly left without any help or hope or support outside of God. And so his, his hope now is the grave, which is so fascinating because uh, two weeks ago, that was Zophar's claim is that the wicked find their hope in the grave. And and Job is now saying, my hope is in the grave. That's the only place where I feel that I will find peace and rest and comfort from this tragedy that has become my life but again this week we see that job has turned the page whereas previously he was all out blaming god he was angry he but he has he has stopped being angry at god right god is again his hope god is again his his shelter and refuge a mediator the only one who is the only one on his side at this point right we will descend together into the dust, or will we descend together in the dust? Right, and and he's and here at the end of chapter seventeen. He makes the point that uh, we're all going to die. You're going to die too. You're going to come to a day. It's hope. He's saying he he's talking about hope. Hope will go with him to the grave. That's what he's saying. Where then is my hope? And my hope, who sees it? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol? Will we descend together into the dust? Mm. He's talking about hope. I'm going to die, but I still have hope. Yeah. I'm going to go into my into the grave with my hope being in God. Yeah. Because that's the only hope left in a in the world that has turned to absolute utter crap. Yeah, I think we could all learn a lot from Job at this point in his experience of grief. And the thing is that this has changed Job mm-hmm. fundamentally. Oh, yeah. He is not the same man as he was at the beginning of this story. Well, you don't go through trauma without being changed. Yeah. But I think he has an even deeper appreciation for the hope in God. Yes, yes. And that is the challenge of going through some great trauma is... Where are you going to place your hope? We were listening to a uh, interview this week with a woman who had previously been deeply into the New Age neocult. Had a podcast who was teaching star signs and uh, talking all about of cra- all, all, yeah, all, all kinds sorts of crazy of stuff. Terrible, terrible stuff. And she said she got into it because her grandmother died, and she found a hope. And being able to contact and communicate with the dead. Mm-hmm. And so she placed her hope in, in that in that, and in the power that could be achieved through various things like Reiki or tarot cards or Ouija boards or uh, reading the stars or crystals. She found hope in the power that could be achieved through that rather than finding her hope in God. And she descended into the Deuteronomy 18 madness and nightmare of witchcraft and wizardry and sorcery and seeking after 
power for the sake of power in order to help pain. And God brought her through it right. to find him. Right. Which is an amazing story. And if you can find that interview, it was right. really it was a uh, It was Michael Knowles from The Daily Wire interviewing this woman. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's about two hours long. But it's a, it's a great interview. And it really digs into the depths of the type of depravity that's normal in our world these days. And, and putting your hope in the wrong thing. Right. Right. And then finding the true hope and recognizing the true hope that is found in the one who is beyond space and time and who is beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Job has made a turn. He is getting better. He is still in that bargaining phase, and he will get his wish before the end to be able to speak to God face to face. Uh, It's not going to go quite how he wants it to go, and yet he'll get his wish. And he will be vindicated. He will be vindicated in the end. That is correct. But not kind of how he wishes he'd be vindicated, I think. Again, Job himself still has a lot to learn, as Mm -hmm. I think... Do we all? all. So, and that's why we, rather than choosing life, we got to seek it. So. Seek life. And all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.